The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right. How you guys doing tonight? Yeah? Doing pretty good? Cool. Wednesday nighters. Thank you guys so much for coming out. Um, it's a blessing to be here with you. If you guys have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be working in Nehemiah tonight. If you don't know where Nehemiah is, woo! I feel like I just had a thought or something, like light explosion. Um, if you don't know where Nehemiah is, find like Kings Chronicles. Keep going to the right. You'll find it. Uh, it's after Ezra, before Job, somewhere between Genesis and Revelation. So, come on, that was a good one. Seriously. Yeah. All right. I'm stretching it. Yeah, I do yoga, so uh, I don't really do yoga. Okay, let's pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into it. God, I'm so thankful tonight uh, because today, Lord, I've just been um, swept away by your grace, swept away by your forgiveness, Lord, as I've been privileged to be able to study, um, to share tonight. Um, God, I'm excited to hopefully be able to bring freedom to your people tonight through the gospel. Um, God, I'm excited because you're on the throne. And uh, even just as Jeff said, just in the middle of the craziness in our country and in this world, Lord, that we know that you're in control, that you are the maker, the sustainer, the one who keeps us, the one who will deliver us, the one who's adopted us, the one that's in control of all good things, um, that you're powerful and that you are on the throne, God. So Tonight, Lord, as I just share uh, your gospel um, in the book of Nehemiah, I pray for clarity of speech. I pray for open hearts and open minds. I pray for no feedback in the microphone. And I just pray, God, for um, your grace to come upon us. And pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Man, the new lights are weird. I feel like I'm in a different room or something. It's kind of freaking me out a little bit. Um, okay, Nehemiah chapter 8. If you guys have your Bibles, if you found it, we're going to be picking it up in verse 13. Uh, before that, though, I don't know if you guys know, so I have been a Christian for 10 years, uh, which to some of you, that might seem like, like a little while. To some of you guys, um, you have dogs that are older than that. Um, to some of you guys, uh, you've probably been walking with the Lord for 50 or 60, 70 maybe, even years, uh, which is amazing. That's awesome. Um, so I've been a Christian for 10 years, but I have been in Christian culture my entire life. Okay, Any, anyone, on, anyone in here relate with that? Anyone grow up in church? Yeah, okay, so I grew up, yeah, my brother back there, same house, same house, same parents. Um, so I grew up in Christian culture, so that means that literally from the time I was in the womb, I took in Christian things. Uh, that means that I was raised listening to Christian music. That means that I was raised listening to sermons every day. Uh, my mom would make me listen to Dr. James Vernon McGee, any fans? Uh, yeah, John MacArthur, guys like that, every day. I was exposed to Christianity, I was exposed to the gospel. I didn't get saved till I was in, in high school, uh, but I was exposed to Christianity quite a bit. So what that means is that, actually, I don't know if you guys know this, but in my mind, I just went and watched that movie Inside Out. Anybody seen that in here yet? It's kind of like a mind movie. Yeah, it's good. Take your kids. Um, took my one-year-old. She sat on my lap the whole time. It was great. Um, so anyways, squirrel. Uh, Okay, I, I just had a baby, you know, and we're not sleeping a lot, so if I just fall asleep or go crazy, just give me some grace tonight. Anyways, in my mind, I have this warehouse, okay? Picture the warehouse. I have this warehouse in my mind, and that warehouse is full of Christian things, 
I've accumulated over the entirety of my 26 years of life. Things like Christian music songs. My first Christian music CD was Newsboys, I think. Step Up the Microphone. Yeah, good CD. DC Talk, good one. Um, so I got these Christian songs in my, in my warehouse. I have memorized Bible verses in my warehouse. I have uh, teachings that I've heard, taken in, things I've learned about the Bible. I have um, Christian cliches and truisms like you see on mugs and things like that. I have all those in my, my warehouse um, I have a lot of apologetic arguments that I can bring up when I'm maybe debating a non-believer, things I've heard. Throughout the years, I have lots of uh, Christian lingo, like blessings, brother, things like that. All those, you know, I know what to say. I know how to be in Christian situations and environments. Uh, there's, if there's one place uh, socially that I probably feel the most normal in, it's church because I've just been there a lot. Uh, I work as a pastor, so I'm at church all the time. I'm in ministry environments. I'm in Christian environments. Um, Christian quotes, all those things, they're all in my warehouse. It's jam-packed full of Christian stuff. Now, that's all really good stuff, right? No problem with that. No problem with newsboys. No problem with Christian apologetics. No problem with Bible quotes. No problem with mugs that have crosses on them. That's cool. That stuff's all great. But tell me if you guys can relate with this. Again, I I just had had a, a baby two weeks ago, so we have two kids now. I have a toddler, and her favorite game is pull everything out and throw it on the floor, which is it's great. It's cute. It's whatever. It's not fun when we have to clean it up, but it's her favorite game. So what we do is we let her play. She pulls everything out, mostly diapers and wipes and toys. And then at the end of the night, we go and we clean it all up. Well, the other day, we were just feeling a little too tired to clean it up. I got up the next morning. I needed to go somewhere, and I need to find my keys. Well, trying to find your keys when your entire floor is completely covered with stuff is a little tricky, Right? Because relate with that a little bit. You ever been able to try and find? It's extremely frustrating when you need to be somewhere and you can't find your keys. Okay, so my floor, follow me here. My floor in my mind is very covered with Christian things. My warehouse is packed full of Christian things. Christian things that we do. Christian things that we engage in. Christian cultures. Christian teachings. Christian cliches. Uh, Christian things that we should be doing: praying, fasting, all of those kinds of things. And my floor is covered. And then there's the gospel, okay? Now, the gospel sometimes feels like my keys, and it's buried under so much Christian-y stuff that sometimes I think all of us could probably relate with this. It's confusing, and it's difficult, and it's challenging to find Jesus, to find the gospel, to find the simple thing that we really need when things get hard because the floor is so covered with so much Christian stuff. And I'll unpack that a little bit more for you um, as we go, but just to get your brain moving. Now, my question is, how much of that stuff, how much of that Christian stuff, as good as it is and helpful as it is, how much of it is really helpful for me to find my keys? How much of it, when stuff really goes down and things are really hard and I really just need Jesus, I just need him and nothing else, how many of those things make it more difficult for me because I'm reaching around trying to find him and I'm grabbing other stuff? I need Jesus, I'm trying to find my keys, and all I can find is other stuff. Okay, that's, that's sometimes how I feel, trying to find the gospel. Now, three questions really quick, we'll come back to these. Maybe if you're taking notes, you can write them down. If you just wanna keep them up in your, uh, in your subconscious and we'll come back to them, that's fine. But just three questions I wanna think about as we're looking at the text for tonight. The first one is this, um, what makes you a disciple of Jesus? Okay, this is the first question. What makes you a disciple of Jesus? Okay, the second question is, how much do you have to know to be a disciple? 
okay? And the third question is, at what point do you become a disciple? These are three questions that I was just thinking about, and I think hopefully that the text will help us to answer those tonight. So you can write them down if you want. Uh, What makes you a disciple of Jesus? How much do you have to know to be a disciple? And at what point do you become a disciple? So, Nehemiah. A little bit of review. Nehemiah is an incredible book uh, that is nestled back in the Old Testament, happened about close to 3,000 years ago. A lot of you guys have been here for most of it, so I won't go too into review. But essentially, uh, Israel has been taken away captive by the empire of Babylon, okay? About 800 years before Christ. They're scattered all over the ancient world. Nehemiah is a man who is a cupbearer for the king, the current time, Artaxerxes. It means he's there to test the cups of wine and things for the king. He's in this great prominent position. And he finds out, catches word, that his home, Jerusalem, in Israel, okay, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, Zion, the holy city, the place where the temple was, the place where God met with his people, uh, is in ruins, the walls are knocked down, they're destroyed, that there's no infrastructure, there's no protection for God's people, and it weighs on his heart, it breaks his heart, so he goes to the king, Artaxerxes, and he asks him for permission to go back to Jerusalem, to go back to Israel, and to govern it, and to rebuild the walls, and to rebuild the infrastructure, and to re, um, uh, just, just build up the city itself and make it back into, hopefully, what it once was. Burns on his heart. So the king says, okay. He goes back. For the last, like, three or four chapters, we've been looking at all of the oppression that has come to Nehemiah. We've been talking about how when we build the kingdom or when Nehemiah builds the kingdom, there is the picture, there's always going to be oppression, both physically and spiritually from every angle, whether it's from within the church or without the church. We've seen all kinds of oppression And then last week, we sort of turned a corner in the book of Nehemiah once we hit chapter 8, and that's where it stops talking so much about the walls and building of the walls, and it starts talking more about what's going on inside the walls. They finished building the walls. The oppression didn't have their way. God delivered them. They built the city, and then in chapter 8, something cool happens, and Brent looked at this last week if you guys were here. Ezra, okay, the scribe, the priest, Ezra pulls out the book of the law, okay? Now, remember Israel has been in ruin. They've been scattered. They've been divided. They've been taken away captive for over a hundred years. Now for the first time, they're back in Jerusalem with a temple, with the walls built around, and for the first time in so long, the scriptures are pulled out, and they're read, and the law is read as Jewish tradition would be. They would read it out loud to the congregation. Everyone would gather and for literally for like four hours, Ezra just read the scriptures and the law. And they were convicted by the word, as the word does. And this week we picked it up, we pick it up in verse 13. So if you guys have your Bibles, we're in chapter 8, verse 13. It says this. It says, on the second day, Okay, so the day after, they've just read the scriptures aloud to all of the Jews. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, okay, so the leaders of Israel, with the priests and Levites, which would be the spiritual leadership, came together to Ezra. Now, think of Ezra this way. If Nehemiah is the secular governor of Israel, then Ezra would be the spiritual governor, okay? So, uh, Nehemiah, our, our key character, he's in charge of politically leading and governing the city, politically leading and go- governing the nation. Ezra would be more of the spiritual leader in that. Um, so Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. So it's day two, the law's been opened, 
And now the leadership of the nation, okay, the elders, the Levites, the scribes, they come to Ezra to do more of an inductive Bible study, to do more of an in-depth look at the scriptures. They looked and read it the day before, and now they're going to study it. Okay, so that would kind of be similar to like what we maybe do on a Sunday or a Wednesday versus what you maybe do in a, with a couple people sitting around a table and really digging into it and discussion and things like that. So they come together to really talk through and discuss and study in depth the scriptures. Verse 14. And they found it written in the law. Now, when you see that word law, okay, that's Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, okay, the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, don't picture booths like you do at like, at like a fair or booths like you would at a trade show. Uh, what that really is is it's tabernacles, tents, or probably the best word would be like a lean-to, okay? Little tents that were made out of sticks and olive branches and things like that. So they're getting into the scriptures, and they come across this interesting part, which I believe is in Leviticus, where God says to his people that they're to have this celebration every seventh month of the year called the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a really cool thing. Now, we just got done with Fourth of July, right? And Fourth of July is something that we just get because we've always done it. Okay, we've always grown up doing it. It's a lot of fun. I don't know if you guys enjoy it, but I do. My wife and I usually go to Lake of the Woods. Our aunt and uncle have a cabin there. We watch the fireworks. We barbecue. We play in the water. We have a lot of traditions and things. I mean, what's better than eating food and blowing stuff up? America, right? I mean, this is what we do. You know, this is good stuff. Um, so we all know about Fourth of July. It's something that we just do. We celebrate. Well, this would be very similar in a lot of ways to Fourth of July for the Jews. Once a year, every year at, seven, at the seventh month, they would come together and they would do the Feast of Tabernacles. It would be a great time of rejoicing, a great time of, uh, of, of partying in a good way. Um, with lots of music and lots of just, lots of joy. And what they would do specifically is they would go over, as you'll see, to the Mount of Olives, and they would gather up olive branches and wood and sticks. I'm so sorry it's cold in here, by the way. I'll try to, try to fix that uh, next week. I know it's chilly. Um, anyways, they would gather up uh, olive branches. I just saw Steve put his jacket on. He's like shivering. He's blue. Look at him. <laughs> um, anyways, squirrel. Okay, uh, they, they would make these little, these little temporary lean-tube type tents, and they would do it on top of their houses because their houses are flat on the roofs, okay, in Israel. So they would build these little things, and it would be like a seven-day camping trip with their family. They'd all climb in together at night, and while they were in there, the leader of the house, the father of the house, would begin to talk and, and, and orally um, remind the family of what happened in Exodus. I love this about the Jewish tradition. They're really big on oral uh, history. They, they're all about teaching their kids through explanation and through um, actually t telling stories about what God did with um, the children of Israel. So they would sit in their little tabernacle and he, they would begin to talk about how Israel at one point in time didn't have a home because they were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them into the wilderness and they had to dwell in tents for 40 years uh, before they could actually go into the promised land. And so this whole feast was to celebrate and to remind them of God's faithfulness in the wilderness. And they would sleep in these little huts, these little lean-tubes. I think we should do it. I think it sounds like fun. Seven days, lean-tube. What do you think? No? Okay. Maybe, uh, maybe another day. Okay. Verse 15. It says, in that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. So this isn't something that you just do 
It's something that all of the nation does. So proclaim it. We're all going to do it together. It says, go out to the hills, which for those of you that are familiar with Jerusalem, that's the Mount of Olives. Okay, there's a little mountain just to the right, just to the one side of Jerusalem. That is the Mount of Olives where Jesus went to pray. That's what they're talking about. Bring branches of olive and wild olive myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Verse 16. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof. And in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate, as a scandalous place. Uh, you guys missed it? Okay. Watergate, scandalous. You got to wake up, Mitch. Come on, man. I know it's dark. Come on. <laughs> okay, anyways, just a little political joke there. Uh, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. Okay, that's the last joke for the night. <laughs> Notice it was to be done in the homes. It was to be done in the legal places. It was to be done in the holy places. It was to be done everywhere. It was to be all-encompassing, all aspects, all walks of life in the city. Verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths, and lived in the booths, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. So all the way from the time of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the current time in which we're reading, they had never done this feast. Okay, this would be like, to use the 4th of July again, this would be like, let's say our, our nation got conquered, and, and we got taken away captive, some to Mexico, some to Canada, some to whatever. Uh, and, and, then, and then after like 100 years, we come back and we reform our nation, we're a nation again, and then we find this cool like YouTube video that we forgot about, like, oh yeah, there's this thing called 4th of July. And we totally forgot about it. We used to do this. It was great. We used to blow things up and eat barbecue, and that's awesome. Let's do that again. It's kind of like that, okay? They used to do this. This was part of their history. They were removed from their homeland. They forgot about it. Now they're back in their homeland. They're reminded of this amazing celebration that celebrates God's goodness, and they're stoked about it, okay? They're stoked about it. They're having a great time. So there it is. The question is, what is all that? have to do with us today. <laughs> the question is, um, how does that apply to us? What is, what is there for us in that? Well, I wanted to share with you guys, I have in the last, it's probably been in the last couple years, but specifically in the last couple weeks, um, I've just been rethinking the way that I teach the Bible. Um, maybe, I guess it was three weeks ago. The last time I taught with you guys on a Wednesday night, I went home just feeling really bad about the teaching. Um, and I kind of do that most nights, but this one was a little different. <laughs> um, my poor wife. <laughs> um, this one was a little different. I, I just, I felt, not that the teaching went bad, but I just felt like, I felt like I didn't take any burdens from you guys. I felt like I put it on. I felt like I didn't, I didn't come and say, there's good news for you. Now take a deep breath and go love Jesus. I felt like I was like, here, take some weight. And, and, and I got to say, in, in, in the position of preaching, it's really easy to do that. It's really easy to do that. It's really easy because people feel like they want someone to tell them how bad they're doing. They want someone to tell them how um, hard they need to try. And, and sometimes we do need to do that. But I just was convicted about that. And, and today, when I, when I approached, or a few days ago when I approached this, I was remembering that, that Wednesday and I was just thinking, Lord, what do you want to say from this? Okay, this, this Feast of Tabernacles and, and stuff like, what do you want to say here? Now, when, when, I, when I teach the scriptures, 
typically what I do is before I get into too much studying, I sit down with a Bible and I just kind of look at the overall story and I say, Lord, where's the gospel here? And God, what do you want to say here? You know? Um, and then I kind of get more into the ground, groundwork of it. But when I first got to this section of scripture, my first inclination was, wow, what a perfect time to preach about obeying the scriptures. Right? Because here we have a people that for so many years have neglected and lost the scriptures, and then all of a sudden they're placed back in their homeland, and here's the law, and they open it up, and it's convicting, and they love it, but not only do they listen to it and read it, but they obey it, right? And I'm like, that's a cool picture of obeying the word, because ultimately, and this is true, we are to obey the word. We're not just to read it. We're not just to to, to listen to it. We're not just to come and hear teachings on Wednesdays, on Sundays, on the radio, on podcasts. We're to obey the word, and that's true. But then I kind of took a second and I thought about it. I'm like, is that the focus of this text? I don't think it is, and I think I would be wrong in teaching that. Okay? I think it would be wrong in teaching that. And so I want to explain why. And I'm hoping that this will, be, this will kill two burns with one stone. Hopefully I'm hoping it will encourage you. But secondly, I'm also hoping it will help you to study the Old Testament. Because there's something that we have to do when we study the Old Testament. You have to look at every story, everything in the Bible, before you begin to apply it. You have to look at it through something called a Christ-centered narrative. A Christ-centered narrative. Now, what that means is, is that you don't just look at the one story. You have to zoom out and look at the whole story. And then you say, how does this story in the Bible that I just read in my devotional time or whatever it is, how does this story fit into the entire narrative of the scriptures? And not just the entire narrative, but the Christ-centered entire narrative, meaning that the entire Old Testament is pointing towards Messiah, that the entire New Testament is pointing back towards Messiah, Jesus Christ, okay? And if this story is not pointing to Jesus, if this story isn't pointing to the need for Jesus himself, the person of Jesus, then I'm probably not reading it right, okay? Because what I could do is I could get up here very easily, uh, as well as most of you probably could too, and pick a story and find some agenda that I want to put on you guys, and, and I could come up with all kinds of stuff, Oh, this applies to this, and that means that, and this is a picture of that. And and before I know it, all I'm doing is putting religious bondage on you guys. And what the scriptures are for is to point to Christ. Because in Christ is all freedom. In Christ is everything that we need. So, with that said, I want to think about this. Here's Israel finding a religious work. Finding something that they can do for the Lord. Which is a cool thing. That's exciting. But did it fix their problem? Did it fix Israel's problem? Did they open the law, remember about Feast of Tabernacles, and then all of a sudden, their ailments, their sinful nature, their issues are gone and over with? No, it didn't. Any more than me finding a new Christian song that I like, or reading something in the Bible uh, about fasting or praying or an action that I can take for the Lord is going to fix everything for me. It didn't fix everything for them. In fact, if you look at church history, the 400 years between this story and Christ are the most bleak years for Israel, spiritually dry. God did not speak at all for 400 years. So yeah, it's great that they found this feast. It's great that they're celebrating, that they're doing what the word said, but ultimately finding this feast is not what they need. Finding this feast is not what they ultimately need. Now, to use the warehouse thing again, okay? Not only do I have a warehouse of Christian culture things, I have a warehouse of things in my mind that God has convicted me on in a moment or that 
are good things that I should be doing or should want to be doing for Christ. I'll give you an example. Every time I hear a message, I usually get something that's a conviction, and that's a good thing. The Holy Spirit works through that, right? So let's say you, you hear a really good message about prayer, and, and it convicts you, and you say, man, I really should be praying more. So you, you're excited about it. You wake up the next morning, and you, you get up, and you begin to pray, and the next morning you begin to pray, and then by the third and the fourth morning, it starts to wane, right? And then that, that, that thing there, that conviction about prayer, went from sort of being something you did every day to going into the warehouse, the closet, the junk drawer, okay? And then a few weeks later, you, you hear a teaching or you read something in the Bible about fasting. Man, I really should be fasting. It's such a good biblical principle. Uh, really, there's so many good things that, that can come from that. And you begin to do it, but then you fail. You start to wane off of it. You get hungry, whatever. That goes in your warehouse. Okay, well, I have so much stuff in my warehouse that I've started to do for Jesus and stopped doing. And now it's just in this giant warehouse and it weighs on my shoulders every day. It weighs on my shoulders every day. Let me give you some examples. I'm not kidding you. This took me like 20 seconds to write down, and this is maybe a tenth of what I could write down. This is just off the top of my head. Every day I feel on my back, in my heart, this guilt of things like this. I should be praying more. Now tell me if you guys can relate with this stuff. I should be eating better. I should be going to school and getting uh, an education, going to seminary. I should be entertained less. I should stop watching TV as much. I should be eating better food. I should be a better friend. I should pray with my wife more. I should work harder. I should evangelize more, pre- preach the gospel more. I should do more pastoral care. I should have more mentors. I should fast more. I should get up earlier. I should spend more time with my kids. I should learn more church history. I should give more financially. I should do more family devotions. I should be better with my money. I should lead more Bible studies, meet more people at church, meet more of my neighbors, teach my daughter the Bible better, study more, read the books, lead, read more books, love my wife better, sleep more consistently, do more missions, help my wife more, disciple more people, be better with money, memorize more scriptures. And ru- This is like what goes through my head every day. You guys relate with that at all? It's exhausting. Now, are these bad things? No. These are fantastic things. Is it bad to strive to do these things? Absolutely not. But where does it end? (laughs) Where does it end? What happens is, okay, we take things that God gave us as a way to express our love for him, and we make those things him. Let me unpack that, okay? Here's an example. When When I first got saved, a few, few years after I got saved, I got my first, like, really nice Bible. I got this King James Bible. It was, like, goat skin. It was really nice. And I was just in this season of just devouring the Word. You guys ever been in those seasons where I'm just, like, hours a day, and I'm highlighting and underlining, and everywhere I went, that Bible was under my arm. I'm just constantly studying it, constantly reading it. And it was a really good season. It was a way for me to show God how much I loved Him. And then after a couple years, I thought to myself, man, this thing's so highlighted up, I need to get a new Bible so I have some fresh, you know, so I have like a fresh page. And so, so I got a new Bible, and I, and I started trying to connect with, with, with the Lord through that, through that Bible, and I was like having a really hard time. Like, man, I, just, I wish I had my old Bible. I had all my notes in there and my highlights and stuff like that. And so I started grabbing my old Bible. And, it, and it, this just sounds silly, probably, um, but it just kind of hit me, like, why is it hard for me not to have that Bible? Because something that, that was a gift from the Lord, something that was really fun for a season that I could just really enjoy, 
went from being a, a way for me to worship God to a thing that I felt like I had to do to connect with God. Does that make sense? I took something that was really good and I made it into Jesus. I can't connect with God without my Bible. I need, I need that, right? I need that. Another, another example is, is, is spending time in study. When I was single, I had time to get up for two to three hours every morning and study. Not just like do a devotion, but study the Word. It was awesome. Now I have two kids and I work a lot and I'm busy and I don't have the ability to do that. Okay, just don't. But for a lot of my life, I felt guilty about that. Like, man, I used to get up and study, and I used to do, you guys ever feel like that about stuff? I used to do so much more for the Lord. I used to this, and I used to do that, and I used to do this, and I used to do that. And those were all really great things, and those were all ways for you to worship God, but now they've become guilt on your shoulders in a warehouse somewhere, collecting dust, making you feel like garbage. It's too bad. It's too bad. And God's up there saying, hey, that was beautiful for a season. You used to worship me by doing that. And now you're in a different season. Why are you stressing out about not doing those things when you could just be in the season that I have you in right now? These are all really good things. But when they become God things, when they become Jesus, they're really bad saviors. They're really bad saviors. Okay, now, those were my things. Every one of you have your own things. Maybe it's your pastor. Maybe it's your favorite podcast teacher. Maybe uh, it's your favorite writer, your favorite author. Maybe it's your friend who just, just seems to just get you to the Lord. Now, are those bad things? Absolutely not. If they help you to cl- get close to Jesus, that's great. That's fantastic. But when you start to make those your savior, that's when it gets unhealthy. That's when it becomes a problem. So, how do you know if you've made a religious practice your savior? Here's a little test for you. This was, this was sort of my test. There's a verse in the Bible that I absolutely love. It's just changed my life. It's so profound. You guys all know it. Seek you first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Okay, we've all heard that. It's on mugs and stuff. But this is like one of the hugest verses to think about. Okay, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So when I really think about what that means, here's what my default mindset is on that. Okay, perfect. So if I get up before the rest of the day, so I'm seeking first the kingdoms, before I go to work, I just get up early and seek God, then I'm seeking the kingdom, all these things are gonna work out. Okay, if I pray to God before I make a decision, then I'm seeking first the kingdom of God, everything's gonna work out. Okay, if I... Um, tithe with my money first. If I give the first fruits of my money, then everything's going to work out. And that's how, that's how my, my natural inclination to interpret that verse is. If I do all of these things, then everything's going to work out. Well, guess what? What if it doesn't? Does that mean that that verse is not true? Have you guys ever given your first fruits and you still couldn't pay the bills? Yeah, it happens. So wait a minute, is that verse not makes sense? Well, that's not what it's saying. And if that's what it's saying, then we're completely missing the point of it. What it's saying isn't that if I do all these things first and, and make all these things priority, then, then everything's gonna work out. What it's saying is, is that if I make Jesus the ultimate treasure of my life, everything will work out because I don't care about anything else. Like Paul says, right, I count it all as dung because I see Christ as the ultimate treasure. And when he's first and foremost in my heart, nothing else matters So therefore, all things will work out for me because I'm now aligned with his will. It's not that I drag him down into my will. When I'm aligned with his will, then everything works out because I'm aligned with his will. So the the test there for me was just to realize that the way that my mind works is that 
I feel like if I'm not doing these things, I'm not seeking the kingdom. If I'm not doing these things, uh, whatever they are, good things or not, whether it be attending church very regularly, whether, whether it be giving very regularly, all of those things, if I'm not doing those things, I don't feel like I'm seeking the kingdom first. But that's not necessarily what that verse is saying. It's not necessarily what that verse is saying. So how do I keep religious practice from becoming my savior? That's the question. How do I keep religious practice from becoming my savior? The first thing, and this is cool, is keep Jesus the ultimate remembrance. Keep Jesus the ultimate remembrance. Let me ask you this. What was the point of the Feast of Tabernacles? The point of the Feast of Tabernacles was to remind Israel that God loved them and that God was faithful to them. It wasn't to remind Israel Israel of what they did for God, because guess what? They didn't really do anything, except for whine and moan and complain, and he had to wait for a whole generation to die off before they could even go in. So it wasn't to remind them of what they did for God. It was to remind them of what God did for them. That was the point of this feast. Now, let's look at the last verse of our text. Chapter 8, verse 18. Keeping that in mind. It says, And day by day, from the first day to the last day, He read the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Okay, this is cool. You guys ready? I I learned this this today. First time I ever heard this. This is so cool. So at the Feast of Tabernacles, there's seven days that they do it, right? Seven days. And on those seven days, not only do they sleep in their lean tubes, and not only do they, they you know, have a big parade with lots of music and all this kind of stuff, they also do something called water libations, okay? And what water libations is, is they, the chief priests and the, and the Levites and all these guys, they get dressed up in their robes, and they take their pitchers, and they go from the temple, and, and again, this is a celebration. Everyone's making noise, and there's music, and there's trumpets, and all this kinds of stuff. They take these pitchers, and they walk down to the Pool of Siloam, Okay, Uh, you might remember that from the New Testament. They go down to the Pool of Siloam and they dip their pitchers in the water. And then with all the music and the parade and all this stuff, they go back up to the temple and they pour the water out on the temple. And they do that for seven days. And that is to remind Israel, again, of God's goodness, to remind Israel of when water came out of the rock and he provided for them in 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 the wilderness. Okay, for seven days. But then there's an eighth day. If you look at our text, this is on the eighth day. Now, the eighth day is different. On the eighth day, just the high priest goes down to the pool with one pitcher, and he gets down to the pool, and he doesn't dip any water. He doesn't dip any water. He walks back up. Everyone's still around, but it's not a rejoicing time. It's a very somber, very quiet, contemplative time. Everyone's still there, okay, big function, but it's quiet. And, and the priest walks up with the empty pitcher, and he goes into the temple and goes to pour it out, but nothing comes out. And everyone's just very quiet, okay? And the reason for that is because that's a picture that was to remind them that, yes, God provided for you in the wilderness, but there's one to come that's going to quench all thirst. Now, he quotes Isaiah 44, if you want to go study it later on your own, Isaiah 44, 2 through 4, he, the, the high priest would quote that. And that's a verse talking about Messiah, talking about how the Messiah will come and quench the thirst of the nations, right? Now, 
If you guys have your Bibles, flip over to John chapter 7, verse 37. This is so cool. John 7, 37. Jesus, in his ministry, is in Jerusalem. Guess when? During the Feast of Tabernacles. It says in 37, John 7, 37, on the last, on the last day of the feast, okay, the eighth day, so you can picture it again, right? Hasn't changed much in 400 years. The, the high priest has walked up to the temple, same place. No water in his pitcher. He's about to dump out the no water. Everyone's quiet. Everyone's somber. And Jesus, in verse 37, says, the great, on that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. So he didn't just say, hey, guys, hey, listen. No, he, he stood up. He stood on something. He shouted with a loud voice. He cried out to them, and he said this. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. <laughs> Do you understand what he's doing there? For hundreds of years, the Jews had watched the high priest come up with an empty vessel, an empty pitcher, and pour out nothing as they were quiet, thinking, oh, how great it will be for the day when Messiah will come and free us and give us this never-ending eternal water. And Jesus, this random 31-year-old guy, stands up, this carpenter from Nazareth, this nothing according to social standards, stands up at this time when no one was supposed to talk, and he says, hey, I'm the water. That's me. That Messiah you've been looking for, I'm it. Can you believe that? Can you imagine the reaction to the Jews? Who does this guy think that he is? Well, he thinks that he's the Messiah, because he is. And you could probably hear a pin drop. Torrents of living water will come, and that's exactly what Isaiah says, and they quote it there. So Jesus is saying, look, you guys have been so thirsty for so long, looking to all of these feasts and all of these laws and all of these priests and all of these prophets and all of the temple and all of the sacrifices to quench your thirst, and guess what? I'm the water. I'm the living water that you've been wanting, that you've been craving. It's me. Anyone that says Jesus didn't really say he was a Messiah is insane. He could not have made it more clear that he claimed to be God, that he claimed to be Messiah. You see, the Jews looked to the law to remind them of God. But we in the new covenant, because of Jesus, only simply have to look at our heart because he's written it on our heart by the Spirit. The Jews looked to the temple to have communion with God. We simply only have to look inside because he's living within us. They had to look to the prophets for wisdom and for truth and we simply have the Holy Spirit inside of us bringing truth out through the scriptures every day. Can you believe that? So, Jesus becomes our remembrance. He becomes the means by which we remember God and his faithfulness and his goodness. I can just picture it in my head today. It's like in the Old Testament, God was here and man was here and in between is the covenant, the old covenant. And in order for man to get to God, he had to go through the means of the old covenant, he had to go through the priestly system, he had to go through the sacrificial system, he had to go through the law. 
And then when Jesus died on the cross, he literally flipped that backwards. He said, now the law is over here, and I am right here. So you don't go through the law to get to me. You go through Jesus to get to me. Well, what is that, where does that put the law? It puts it here. It means that when you go to Jesus, the law will happen. <laughs> it means that when you go through Jesus, that all of these good things in my warehouse collecting dust will just happen. It means that I don't have to strive and try and try and try and try anymore. You realize that when I'm doing that, when I'm turning to all of the things that I know how to do to find favor with God, to connect with God, I'm doing exactly what the Jews did. I'm going right back to the law. I'm trying to get to God through Christian things rather than just going to God directly and then letting the Christian things come. Praying is good. Fasting is good. Studying the word is good. They're not good if you go to them to get to Jesus. Go to Jesus and then do those things. Through him. Make him the intercessor. Make him the connection to God. It's like we're, if you picture a globe, it's like we're sitting here and Jesus is right here and we're going all the way around to get to him. When he's right there, we're going to all of these means to get to him, all of these Christian things, all of these actions, all of these religious things that are great, but they shouldn't be how we get to Jesus because he's right there. He's right there. He's right within us. We need to live out of the gospel. What does that mean? To live out of the gospel. When you think of a plant, whatever it's planted in is what it's going to grow out of. Are your roots sunk into the gospel? Are your roots sunk into Jesus as a relationship, as a person? Or are our roots sunk into Christian culture? Are our roots sunk into the fact that we listen to Caleb on the radio and that we go to church on Sundays and that we do Christian things? Because if your roots are sunk into that, you're not living out of the gospel. You're living out of nothing. (laughs) You're living out of stuff. It's all a relationship. Be rooted in him and what he's done and who he is. Listen, it's not the what or the how much of what we do as Christians. Can I say that again? It's not the what. It's not whether you're a missionary or you're a pastor or whether you just work a job or whether you lead a small group or whether you don't do any of that, whether you set up chairs. It's not the what. It's not the how much do you serve, how much do you do. It's the why that he's concerned about. Not the what, not the how much, it's the why. Why are you doing those things? Are you doing them because you love Jesus and you can't help but love your wife more? And you love Jesus and you can't help but study the scriptures because you love him and it's a result of it? Or are you doing those things to try to get to him? It's not the how much, it's not the what, it's the why he's concerned about. He wants to know why you're doing those things. Can I just say Jesus fulfilled my warehouse of junk on the cross? He did. So that big list that I just had of things that are all really good that I want to do that I'm never going to be able to do, he did all those for me. And then he gave me a completely clean floor by which to find the keys so I don't have to clutter it up with junk so that when I need him, I know exactly where to find him. Because I don't have to deal with the burdens and the guilt of stuff that he paid for for me, that he bore for me. It's good news. Okay, I'll leave you with this. 1 Corinthians 4, if you guys just have your Bibles, just flip over there really quick and then we'll end here. Paul the Apostle, we hear a lot about him, right? He wrote Ephesians, which is where we're at on Sundays. Paul was a fantastic example of a man that understood what it meant to be rooted and to live out of the gospel. 
And here's, here's just a little section into, into his thought process. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, okay, listen, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Now listen to what Paul's saying there. He says, first of all, and a lot of people were judging Paul at that time, okay? It's just... He had a lot of haters. He says, not only am I not really concerned about what you guys think of me, and he takes it a step further. He says, not only am I not concerned about your judgments, I'm actually not even concerned about my judgments of myself. Now, I don't know about you guys. I can, I can for the most part, deal with what other people think of me. Okay, when, when other people don't like me, it's, it's, it's hard, but I can deal with it. You know what I can't deal with? It's what I don't like myself. What I can't deal with is when I'm constantly beating myself up for what I'm not and can't do. I'm my worst enemy for the gospel. I really believe that. Satan's pretty tough. The world's pretty tough. But my flesh and my mind and my self-hatred and my insecurity and my pride war against the gospel more than anything in my life. I am my own worst enemy. And Paul knew that. That's why he said, you know what? I don't care about what you think. And I really don't even care about what I think. I care about what Jesus thinks. We are so hard on ourselves. And this isn't a go love yourself, hug yourself message. <laughs> because honestly, we should be hard on ourselves. We have a lot of failures and a lot of scripts. But Jesus dealt with that. And he paid that. <laughs> The biggest factor that keeps us as Christians from living out of the gospel is ourselves. Are you willing to let Jesus judge you instead of let you judge you? Are you willing to do that? It sounds funny, but it's true. Are you willing to take that warehouse and say, there's a lot of really good things in here, and I just pray daily that God will allow me to do some of these things for his glory in a way to worship him, but I'm gonna stop carrying that thing around because it's breaking my back. And I'm gonna let Jesus decide what I should be doing. I'm gonna let Jesus decide where I should live and who I should be with and how I should act. And I'm gonna let the Holy Spirit work in my life and bring conviction rather than me trying to orchestrate my entire life, rather than me trying to somehow make myself feel like I'm really a disciple. Now back to our opening questions, okay? Back to the opening questions. If I can find them. What makes you a disciple of Jesus? Is it how much Christian radio you listen to? Is it how much Christian culture you understand? No, it's whether you know him. What made the disciples disciples? Okay, they didn't have their Pauline theology down because there was no Pauline theology. <laughs> you understand that? It was just the Old Testament. There was no New Testament to study. There was no John Calvin commentaries. There was no Christian radio, things like that. There was none of that. The only thing that made the disciples the disciples was that they knew and walked with Jesus. It was all about their relationship with him. So what makes you a disciple of Jesus? Knowing him. How much do you have to know 
to be a disciple. You just have to know him. <laughs> is that freeing? It's so freeing for me. All I have to do is to know him, to be a disciple. And at what point do you become a disciple? You become a disciple whenever you say, I'm following you. It's that simple. We don't have to clutter it. So many times we watch people in churches and we think, well, is he a Christian? Well, he looks like a Christian. He's doing Christian stuff. Is that what makes you a disciple? I mean, there's a lot of people in church that are doing a lot of Christian stuff that are not disciples because they don't know Jesus. Man, I did Christian stuff for years as a kid. Everyone thought I was a Christian. I wasn't a disciple because I didn't know Jesus. I just knew a lot of Christian stuff. When we sit before him on the, and that last day, you're not going to care about how many Christian bumper stickers you had on your car. You're not going to care about how many Christian cliches you memorized or quotes. You're going to care about whether you know him. Jesus, homie, I know you. You're my God. I know you. We had a relationship, right? I won't call him homie. That was dumb. But you know what I mean? Like, that's what you're going to care about. You're not going to care about all this other stuff. Amen? All right, would you guys stand with me? God, I'm just, uh, I just pray everyone could walk out this door feeling free. Not free to go uh, do whatever they want, but that they would feel free to let you sort out all of their junk. (laughs) That they would let you sort out their convictions. God, I pray for those in here that um, just simply compare themselves to others and make that how they know whether they're saved. I pray you would just free them from that. I pray that they would not even judge themselves, but they would simply trust you to work in them. I pray, Lord, that you would release that bondage of feeling like they have to somehow earn your love that they would embrace it, and out of that, God, would come great sanctification, great discipleship. I pray for those in here that actually don't know you, that have been doing Christian things for a long time. If there be any of us in here that may think that we are saved because we do Christian things, Lord, convict our hearts. May we know you, first and foremost. May our roots be sunk into you. May our chips all be on you and on nothing else not on denominations or churches or ministries, but on you, Jesus. When stuff gets bad here, God, I know that all that matters is whether we really know you or not. Nobody cares about this other stuff. So Lord, just help us. Help Heritage to be a church. God, I pray this all the time, but help Heritage to be a church that doesn't clutter the floor, that keeps the main thing the main thing, that knows where to find you, Jesus, as the primary focus, that keeps the gospel at the center, that doesn't clutter our Christian life with a lot of works, but that simply is in love with you and has a relationship with you and everything that we do comes out of that. God, I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys, we'll see you Sunday.